0: this is democracy in crisis i'm baynard woods my co-host mark steiner is occupied with other business this week but i'm joined here by the center for emerging media's amani spence who often is behind the board on the show sometimes in front of the mic and with uh, brandon soderbergh the editor at the baltimore city paper welcome y'all
1: Hey. hey, what's up?
0: I wanted to have y'all in to talk a little. Help me talk through this story that I wrote this week about Aaron Cantu, um, who is a reporter with the Santa Fe Reporter, uh, one of the alternative weeklies that subscribes to Democracy in Crisis. He's written for a lot of other great places, um, The Intercept and The Baffler, and, and there's some links to his stories, and we'll link to the story, and, and the, then it links to his stories. He's a really good writer, and. He was arrested along with 214 other people on inauguration day um, for rioting, inciting a riot, conspiring to riot, and destruction of property, along with these 215 other people. But he wasn't indicted until May 30th, whereas others were charged much earlier. These charges were just brought against him. And the charges all read things like this is from the indictment. It was part of this riot at or about 10, 19 a.m. on January 20th, 2017. Aaron Cantu and others moved south from Logan Circle on 13th Street Northwest as part of the Black Block. It was as part of this riot that, at or about 10.21 a.m. on June twentieth, 2017, within two blocks of leaving Logan Circle, individuals participating in Black Block started breaking and attempting to break windows of a BP gas station as Aaron Cantu and others moved south on 13th Street Northwest. So the charges are that as a reporter, he's moving along the street with people who tried to break a window. And so this has really sparked my outrage and a lot of other things. I was there that day as that was happening. and You were down there as well, Brandon. And maybe we'll start by talking a little bit and just going there. Sure,
1: yeah. So I think one of the things that's con- – as, as anti-fascism and antifa has become a thing everyone's talking about again, the black bloc keeps coming up, and it's often mistaken as – almost like it's framed often as a gang but it's really a tactic and it's a tactic that any any group could employ but essentially it's just you know a bunch of people dress in black so they become kind of a mob that's moving together and it makes them both anonymous and bigger than themselves and so for example what you can see if you look at footage on the j20 stuff was essentially they move in concert with each other certain of certain um, dudes will or i don't know if they're dudes or not but they'll move out and they'll maybe smash a window they tend to do it with like ruthless efficiency. They're very well trained. I think that it really counters a lot of myths about that they're left or whatever is disorganized. So the idea is you go and you smash this or you do this. You do the action. You pull back in. You become sort of blur back into the like group of people. And it's really a tactic, and it goes back to like anti-fascist stuff in Europe and on um, the Battle of Seattle in uh, 1999. A big part of it too, um, and it's often mistaken. I think like I like it's it's strictly a tactic. I guess the thing I just want to really stress: it doesn't have any. Direct connections to anti-fascism. This is a tactic that they're very good at, and it's an extension of the same sort of tactics you'll see with that kind of stuff of um, using things which they did on that day to using things that are in the street or on the side of the street or whatever as essentially weapons or barriers. Um, you know, some cities where the there's maybe like metal plates around the trees. You unscrew those, you use those. They can be shields. You know, they'll pull like at the on J2, on the the inauguration day they started at a certain point to start throwing stuff into the road and sort of creating a barrier. You saw a lot of that, I think, because you were kind of right there. And that's, again, these are tactics. It may look like chaos. It's the main thing. And so it's 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 very strategically done, although it might look like chaos to other people. But
0: Because um his editor, when I talked to her, told me that, like, yeah, now he would wear a tie, yeah. even though it's a thing that will keep him from being as... Accepted by the people you're reporting on.
2: Yeah, but the, even in the piece you're writing, it said that it kind of became, if anyone was wearing black, they kind of became a target for this you're writing about, which I guess maybe this, I'm assuming this editor is thinking, well, if he's wearing a suit and tie, then at least he'll be kind of, you know, separated from the pack. But at the same time with this administration, we know they don't really honor the press anyway. So it's kind of like, why put that? I mean, I understand why she's one to puts put that barrier, like in the idea of safety, but in general, thinking about it, nothing that we can do as reporters and journalists will really keep us that much safer from this
0: administration. Yeah, and let me step back a second, because normally anywhere else these charges would be state charges. So um, and they're, they're all looking at, at somewhere between 70 and 80 years um, uh, if they're convicted on all of these charges. And it's not only – I mean, Aaron is a big case because he – is a reporter and like us would could be out there doing his job, but a lot of people were charged just because they were there and wearing yeah. black.
1: Yeah, and I chug- mean, there's no way that all 215 people yeah, were doing no. that. there was not. If you look at footage, it's clear that not everyone there was doing that, yeah.
0: Because this happened in the District of Columbia, um, it means that the U.S. Attorney's Office brings the charges, even though they're not technically federal charges, which means that ultimately the prosecutor does answer to the executive branch in a way yeah. That wouldn't be the case here in Maryland or in any other jurisdiction outside of the District of Columbia. So what you're saying, Amani, about the administration respecting the press really is pertinent here. And, and this is what I keep trying to ask. I've finally been able to get into the White House. And what I keep trying to ask is, does the administration know about this? And what does the administration have an opinion? Did, were you part of bringing these charges? Because most of the charges were brought back in April Um, And he early April on their often even second round of indictments. And then Aaron alone was indicted on May 30th of this year. So it it seems to be a specific targeting of a member of the press.
1: And there's also kind of a it's a perfect storm of horribleness because also Newsham, who's the police commissioner, is involved in it. And he has kind of a troubling history of treating quote-unquote rioters or property damages in this way, and he's a, you know, he's abused pro- there's certain things he's done that have like he was sued over how protesters were treated in sim- ways that were very similar to once the J-20 people were kind of kettled and kind of stuck there surrounded by police can't move and people had to like go to the bathroom and stuff like that like he had, there was a previous case in which he was involved in that, so Newsom is the you know D.C. police commission, he's part of that and then on top of that you have that the Trump administration which just seems like I mean, it's possible they're so incompetent they have no idea who this is. Although also I feel like most reporters like us don't know, seem to care about this too much. But it certainly seems like a perfect storm of, of abuse of power in a way. Of-
0: and things causing themselves. So one of the, the – uh, they just filed a motion yesterday where there's a new expert witness who's test going to come and testify about the kinds of chemical weapons, the Metropolitan Police Department in D.C., the, about the chemical weapons that they use. So people – part of the charges against people are that they were wearing – Bandanas. And yet you're wearing bandanas because chemical weapons had been deployed. Then you're charged with as part of the black block for wearing a bandana. And there's a way in which that's even worse than typical entrapment where you entice someone to commit an actual crime. But you call it you force them to um, conceal their face so Their face isn't burned. Yeah. And then you charge them with concealing their face.
1: And maybe, Baynard, because you were we were both there. Um like I had someone I had a ma- I had something up over my face and I think you did too because it stung really bad and they were spraying it so indiscriminately and there was something else being launched. I'm not really sure what it was, but it hurt my eyes. You couldn't see. There was cops with horses that were like bucking the horses at people. It was a completely chaotic moment and i didn't want to get sprayed or fall and i was like i've other people i was with that were also reporters and i want to make sure i was safe i want to make sure anyone i could was like okay especially especially i was with other reporters so yeah it really created this chaotic situation it's still not entirely clear as far as i can tell what weapons they used as well which is another thing so while this is sort of the thing i keep yelling about on twitter i guess but even as we um are all these charges are being put on these people 80 years in jail possibly there's still no clear information about even what weapons they were that were used by the mpd on that day exactly what was used and a lot of the things they claim they didn't use there's you know photos that suggest they use something like it or maybe that's kind of these like po- political games like we didn't they was we did use stingball grenades which i don't really know what no one knows what that is but they use something very similar you know what i mean that like, comes all this kind of like Right, saying subterfuge. they didn't use
0: tear gas, but they used some kind of gas, which right, was exactly. definitely burning, and yeah. and so we filed public information act requests. Democracy in Crisis has, um, for the MPD, trying to yeah. and there was supposed to be a home, yeah, And there was
1: supposed to be a homeland security report on all this released months ago that. I've never been able to get an answer about it. I imagine someone would have written about it if it was out. So I think it's yeah. not there. And that's what Commissioner Newsham told me in email was, oh, well, they'll be, this is out of my hands now, the Homeland Security. They'll send you The report will be
0: out. And it's never been released. So let's back up a minute because I feel like, especially me and you have been talking about this stuff since that day. We haven't really set it up enough with with where the listeners are that, that first, that this was on, on Inauguration Day. And like, I don't know, do you all know, the crowd sizes have been a big debated <laughs> thing there, um, which is one of the reasons that I can't wait to ask this question, too. Yeah. And if you're a defendant, I don't know. The crowds were so big. They're just pushing me <laughs> into these yeah. people. Um, so we we
2: there are people coming into the – did you go there that day, Amon? I did not. I saw images. I've seen different things. I actually have someone I know in my family, who was there to support the Trump inauguration. And what she was saying that I thought was kind of interesting was that she kept hearing about these black, bloc protests, but never saw them, which I think kind of points to this weird division of like both physical space and then also probably mental space of being like, oh, they're just like hanging out in black and like holding each other's hands
0: (laughs) in the same way that people didn't. A lot of people were in town that day for the Women's March the next day, but didn't see any inaugural. I mean, maybe saw right. some red hats walking around, but didn't see too much of the the inauguration people either because it, and, and it was a crazy scene all around at DuPont Circle. There were they gave away over 4000 joints um, and people right. were standing in the street smoking joints. There were um, early. You were covering Brandon in action where activists chained themselves to the gates. And they to shut get the into gate. The yeah, it, was, it
1: was a bunch of different. groups. So one I was with was a uh, black moving for, for black lives. Um, mostly Black Lives Matter D.C. and some Black Lives Matter-related protesters from Baltimore. Yeah, they they basically entered one, got up to one of the gates and chained themselves yeah. across and shut that gate down for a long period of time. And there was no arrest, but um, uh, feminists' future was, uh, apparently they were pepper-sprayed when they did the same action down another gate. Um, and so that's maybe, I'll try to keep this quick and go back to the basic narrative, but that's another thing that's interesting about Cantu is like, it feels like maybe what they're alleging is he had some knowledge that this was going to happen and therefore mm-hmm. that's against the law which it's not um, which would be the same as if something really like we're all privy to this as reporters like I was aware that some kind of action was going to happen where I was that day I was told that much information so I showed up at 7 in the morning and didn't know anything else but imagine if something had happened there and then my phone had gotten confiscated or stolen by the police then they see these messages and start to really build and build Um, so that's you know that's kind of what I think it's almost like the feds don't understand what reporting is (laughs) Um, so that but anyway. So anyway, so that's happening. So there's all these different actions happening. we were all sort of reducing the impact in some way or another of the uh, administration on this big deal day. But the sort of biggest one, I think, was the, the, the black bloc and their their property damage, um, which you were kind of with them at that.
0: Yeah. So there was a, a protest sort of central at McPherson Square. And I saw a group of people all wearing black, leaving from there. I knew something was going to be happening. I had my eyes open, but I wasn't sure where people were meeting or when. And so I started following this group. And then they said, oh, there they are. And there was a larger group. Um, And so I started running towards them. They were coming towards me. And as we rounded a corner sort of together, the police started also coming behind them on bicycles and stuff. And so that's when the various things started flying into the streets, blocking police. Police going around that and then just forcing, coming in from the other side too at 12th and L Streets roughly and and forcing everyone into this one area. An officer ran at me holding a billy club sideways and running at my neck and she said, uh, she said something, I yelled press and she went around me and knocked down the person behind me. Um, And so like that's one reason why this really you know, And, yeah, they would have found, and so everyone was communicating with Signal and stuff, but if they would have arrested me, they would have taken my, and this, you know, this story was big a few weeks back where, oh, Signal isn't really secure, and but the whole thing was is, yeah, it is, unless they physically get your phone, which happened with all of those people, um, and they have the communications between them all on their phones, which is how the, part of what they're using to charged with a conspiracy.
2: I think that's also interesting because I remember, I guess now it's been about a year and a half maybe, when the Supreme Court decided that it was okay to look at your phone when you're pulled over for a stop. Well, it's not pulled over in this case, but you know, when you're arrested, they can't look at your phone and go through it as evidence. Um, and I remember thinking, that's like whatever. I remember just kind of in my head, I was like, yeah, but like they should be able to do that, duh. You know, It's, it's all on your person. And now thinking about currently what the implications of that I mean, it never really was good. I just wasn't informed. But the implications of that in this context are really interesting because then what do you, I guess the only thing you can do is not get arrested. But how do you stop yourself from getting right. arrested? Because if you're using Signal, like you're saying, and then you know there are a lot of other encrypt- encrypted ways to communicate, but they take it, then you're really SOL.
0: Yeah, if you don't have, I mean, I think that will be a next step for these things is sort of, Dual verification, something to try to even get into it on your physical phone um, that it is unable to be taken out or something. But I mean, because we've, we've had so many of these privacy cases involving cell phones with like Stingray, which one of the major cases was here where they make your phone send out a signal that makes your phone that mimics a cell phone tower and makes your phone tell them where you are and they can physically find you. We've had the, the stuff where like and Adnan Syed, going back to the, the right. 99 that's been coming back up again, and in the Keith Davis case here, well, you were in this area because your phone says you were in this area, right. and now, like, you're part of a conspiracy because of evidence that we find. I mean, it's going to be, this trial is going to be fascinating because I think it's one of the trials with the most data evidence that's ever been done before. So you have 187 individual phones, that are part of the evidence and all of the data on those phones. And so determining is every Facebook post they had part of the data? Is um, phone calls, texts, what what is data on that and what goes to all defendants? Right, exactly. Do you have nude selfies on there? And does that that well, have to go everywhere? Yeah. You
2: know, it's it's pertinent information. Um, I think that you were talking about this, Brandon, how confused you were well and I was also confused thinking about there's a quote in your piece saying the, ju- the prosecutor is like, you know, oh, but we have these 25 dependents. We don't really know what goes to each 25. And the pro- the judge is like, I mean, you guys decided to do this. And 25 is a small, like you know, branch of contingent of this. But if these people are deciding to charge 214 people, 187 phones, and they were probably texting each other, like, the way to connect that data just doesn't seem worth it.
0: But it is the weird. I mean, they have found the weak spot, the prosecutors, by saying, if you know what black bloc is and we can show that on here and you wear black and are moving with them, then you're part of it and you're part of the conspiracy. Even if you don't break a thing, you're responsible for that, because that's the other thing important to note, that every one of those people is charged with the destruction of property. So there are four counts of obstruction of destruction of property, I think, and those are all destroyed by, they say, 215 people. In mass, and so I, I think, um, you know, I mean, th- this is going to be a case where the legal issues are just tremendous, but especially in the case of of Aaron, the reporter, this is the First Amendment case that we've all, that everyone's been waiting for, and you know, the the White House people are upset about th- all of these other things about not being having their the briefings filmed and whether Spicer is going to go away and there's going to be a new spokesperson, and they're all ignoring this thing. I mean, he's not speaking to the press because legal issues and stuff, but there are a couple pieces, a couple stories that I, one story that I quote in particular that was really relevant that he wrote from the RNC. Yeah,
2: um, it was really good. I wrote that down and, down.
0: and it's where the title of the piece comes from, and I think it could really be a, a, a good place to end this. Do you want to read
2: it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Imagining the worst po- possible future your mind can conjure is an essential step to avoiding a world you do not want to live in things are bad, very bad, and we will fuck them up even worse if we if we can't acknowledge how b- very bad they are.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a, a strong piece of... And he was writing this from the RNC, and he also, as part of that, was dream darker. We need to dream darker to be able to see what's going to be happening, that we aren't even able to see how bad it might get. And so it's, it's you know, horrible, ironic fulfillment of... of Showing us in the the person of of, you know, who uttered those sort of now seeming prophetic words that this is really like the First Amendment case of of the Trump administration. Yeah, And
1: what could be darker than getting possibly hit with 80 years in jail for
0: doing your. Job. (laughs) I'm Baynard Woods, and this is the Democracy in Crisis podcast.
2: I'm Imani Spence, producer of the Center for Emerging Media.
1: And I'm Brandon Slatterberg, editor of the City Paper.
0: Much love and grim solidarity, y'all.